A garrison is a safe place where an army gathers. In the same way, the Disability Garrison podcast is a place for the army of disability rights advocates to gather and discuss complex issues. We are unafraid to identify problems in our world and have difficult conversations about them. But we are not just here to complain. We spend our time brainstorming solutions with generals in the disability rights movement. Together, we take action to make positive change and lead the fight for justice and equality. My name is Hallie Carmichael. My name is Michael Murray. This is the Disability Garrison. Thank you, everybody, for joining the Disability Garrison today. Today, we're going to talk about health care disparities. Health care disparities are differences in access to or availability of medical facilities and services and variation in rates of disease occurrences and disabilities between population groups. So communities of color, populations of lower socioeconomic status, rural communities, uh, people with cognitive and physical disabilities are often disproportionately exposed to conditions and environments that negatively affect health risks and outcomes. Uh, One historical example of this is the health disparities in the AIDS crisis of the 1980s. But more recently, we've experienced this kind of disparity when it came to the rationing of ventilators for those of us with disabilities during the COVID-19 pandemic. So today, this is what we want to look at directly in the eyes, is the healthcare disparity that we see throughout our country and how we can positively impact that disparity and ensure that everyone has equal access to the kind of healthcare that we all deserve and have a right to within our country. All right. Well, we are thrilled at the Disability Garrison to have with us Andy Imperato, the Director of Disability Rights California, the largest protection advocacy agency in the country. And uh, we're going to chat a little bit today about some of the health inequities that have uh, that have existed all along, but really, I think a spotlight on them occurred with COVID and as we saw some of the rationing and and this disability rights issue is, is still ongoing because we're not out of this pandemic yet. And as I said, it existed before. We've talked previous episodes about organ transplant discrimination, but um, we're thrilled to invite Andy on our podcast to chat with us more about it today. Welcome, Andy. Thank you, Holly. It's great to be here. Well, let's dive in a little bit about really kind of lay the situation for folks. Cause I think one of the pieces is people don't even know that this is happening. And so I don't know if you want to share just from, from your experience in California or even seeing the news around the country, what, what we mean by rationing of healthcare or, or supplies in this pandemic. Sure. Well, let me start by just sharing some of the, the hats that I wear in this conversation. So I was appointed by president Biden as one of 12 public members on the COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force. Health equity is a big, big concept, but uh, the way I think about it, it's trying to learn lessons from the pandemic that will improve our ability to treat everybody fairly, and that will try to uh, address some of the long-term inequalities that, that we've allowed to go on that make us less able to respond effectively during a pandemic. So 
I like the way the chair of the task force put it at one of our meetings. Her name is Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith. She's from Yale. She's a clinician at Yale. Um, but she said, our job as a task force is to disrupt the predictable patterns of who will be harmed first and who would be harmed worst during a pandemic. One of the things that happens in a pandemic is you have periods of scarcity. Right. You don't have enough ventilators or you don't have enough hospital beds yeah. or you don't have enough direct care workers. I mean, there's scarcity in lots of different ways and trying to navigate the scarcity where you don't reinforce prejudice and reinforce yes. inequity is not easy. And yeah. that's something that we have to do better as a society. And the pandemic showed us that if we don't do it well, people die. Mm. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And we saw some of these states and, and even nationally, I think, put forth these plans of how they would use resources in a pandemic. And, and many of those plans include not allowing them for, for somebody with a disability. And, and so what, um, I mean, did you have that happen in California? Yeah. So in California, our California Department of Public Health came out with guidelines that were supposed to be, you know, uh, useful for mm -hmm. hospitals and other people that were making decisions during the pandemic. They came out with their guidelines in April of 2020. So very much early. like six weeks into the pandemic. Wow. And they were a draft. And they basically said, uh, when we're trying to make decisions about who gets a ventilator and who doesn't or other, other kind of life or death decisions when we're in a surge and we're having to do rationing, the people who are not going to get priority are people who are too old or too disabled to benefit from whatever the thing is. Why? And, uh, you know, the Justice and Aging, Disability Rights Education Defense Fund, Disability Rights California, and a number of other groups said, this is illegal. <laughs> yes. When you just put out yes. a guidance is a violation of federal civil rights laws. Yes. And I mean, the, the, the people who put out those guidelines were not malicious. They weren't, you know, bad meaning in any way. No, yeah. They were trying to be helpful. And in their mind, it was a no-win situation. They yeah. were trying to, you know, put some, some parameters out there that could help people make very difficult decisions. Yeah. But none of them, none of the people at that table developing those guidelines had any training in disability rights mm -hmm. or or discrimination against older adults they didn't know the age discrimination employment act they didn't know the american right. disabilities act so they just gave a science mm -hmm. view of what should be done and the science yeah. view happened to be ableist and eugenicist yeah <laughs> yes. so, yeah so uh we pushed back hard our Secretary of Health and Human Services for California, Dr. Mark Galley, listened to us, and we ended up with dramatically better guidelines. They issued yeah. new guidelines in June, and they were wow. dramatically better. So, I, you know, one of the lessons there for me is that state and local public health agencies don't have enough grounding in disability civil rights. Mm. They, don't, they don't understand civil so rights yeah. laws are not part of their training. So we have to bridge the divide between medical ethics and civil rights. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. the people who are professionals in medical ethics are rarely exposed to disability civil rights laws. And the people that do 
disability civil rights work often don't understand the complicated medical terminology that gets used in healthcare rationing situations. Yeah. The other thing that we can't lose sight of is we were in a rationing situation because we weren't prepared. Yes. If, yes. if, if you prepare, and California actually had a history of buying a lot of ventilators and then <laughs> and then like getting rid of them. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. if if you prepare for these kinds of things as as like part of this new normal that we're all living through, then we shouldn't have rationing. And if we do have rationing, it shouldn't last for very long. Yeah. So we shouldn't yeah. miss the other parts. Like why is a country with all of our resources in a healthcare rationing situation in the first place? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think it even, you know, you talked about the, the medical ethics folks not having disability rights, but I think there's even a deeper just bias amongst a lot of people that if you're disabled, your life is worse and, and it's not as worth saving as a non-disabled person. In fact, um, we were able to pull a quote or a, from a 2021 study that over 80% of US physicians surveyed thought that people with disabilities have worse quality of life. So they're judging this person's value and their quality of life based on a single stat. And it, it could be a single stat such as your hair color, your eye color, <laughs> you know, it just happens to be your disabilities. I wanted to bring up the, the early use of quality adjusted life years in the state of Oregon. I don't know if you all know. Yeah, let's do that. Oh, yeah, so, so the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed in 1990. And one of the first tests of the ADA was when the state of Oregon tried to use quality adjusted life years to decide who was going to get a procedure paid for by Medicaid. Wow. And the scheme that they came up with is they said, look, we're Oregon. We want to make sure that we're paying for efficient use of healthcare yeah. resources. Yeah. So we're going to decide whether you get a procedure based on the quality adjusted life years you're going to have after the procedure. So if after the procedure, you're going to have a pretty significant disability, we're going to score you down on the quality. And even if you're going to live another 30 years, because your quality of life is so low, you may not get the procedure. Wow. And uh, the other interesting thing is the way the state of Oregon Medicaid program decided they would decide the, your quality of life was by polling the general public in Oregon. <laughs> So if, no. people, if people in Oregon said if you had one leg versus two legs, your yeah. quality of life is 20% worse, or if you can't think oh as my well, goodness. Or, or if you have chronic migraines, like they all, they were asked to like decide, not oh having had that lived experience, what was valuable and what was not valuable. Uh, and did they include so, non-disabled things like being bald? What I is don't your know. Quality I don't of know. Life like being I bald? think my quality of life is great. I love being bald. But you can't use all the beautiful shampoos. That's so ridiculous. You miss out on that. Oh so goodness. you shouldn't get Michael, a I think you played your baldness very well. You did. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. But, but the, it's interesting. So people challenged that this was, you know, this was 1991. That's huge. It yeah. was the Bush administration, Republican administration. People challenged the state of Oregon under the ADA. And it was one of the first tests of whether what the ADA, whether it had yeah. any teeth. Yeah. And yeah. the Secretary of Health, Health and Human Services under Bush said, this is a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act and we're so not going to yeah. stand for it. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting, one of the first tests of the ADA was this idea 
that your life is less valuable and you're not going to get a medical procedure that you need wow. because of your life is less valuable. So there's a long mm -hmm. history of this yeah. and it's not Democrat or Republican. Like there, no. are, there are powerful Democrats that believe in quality adjusted life years. Yeah, you know, uh, Ezekiel Emanuel is probably the most powerful. Wow. And, and there are powerful Republicans that think that this is a good way to decide how scarce resources get allocated. And the pro-life community can be one of the strongest voices in support of the inherent value of disabled people's lives. And that was part of the reason the Office of Civil Rights under President Trump started pushing back on blue and red states that were you know, using disability against people on whether they would get ventilators. Yeah. So it's just interesting yeah. politics. You can't really predict yeah. who's an ally and who's not an ally just based on ideology on yeah. these issues. No, disability is a, I mean, we talked about this on, a, on another episode too, where it's, it's not, it's not necessarily a red or a blue. It's, it's certainly, um, disability rights are human rights, our civil rights. These are things that, and we could all, I think it's like 70% of us are likely to need some type of support as we age, you know, the longer you live, the more likely right. you are to, to encounter a disability. And I know, in my years, especially working in, um, started off working in a group home, met several people who became disabled from an accident and a, right. a fluke thing that right. that you wouldn't expect. It's it's a critical piece, regardless of your political ideology, that that life is valuable and that your life, should you become disabled, is still valuable. Well, and I, and I think at the root of a lot of uh, this perception of what uh, how valuable your life is. Uh, when you have a disability is based in a deeply rooted fear uh, that I don't want to become them, that out of all the people in the world that you could become like, you don't want to be uh, bald and you don't want to be uh, have a disability. I'm just kidding about the bald part. Um, <laughs> no, but, but, also, but, I, but I think that we as people with disabilities uh, have an opportunity um, to, uh, to, to change that and to, to recognize that disability is a natural part of the human experience. The longer you live, the more likely you are to acquire a disability and that it is nothing to be scared of. And that by reducing that fear, it also opens up our perception of uh, the quality of life that you can have as a person with a disability, as that we have as people with disabilities. But also, if you think about the professional training of physicians- So true. And many healthcare workers, they're not exposed to the idea that disability is a natural part of human experience. They're not exposed to the perspectives of people with lived experience with long-term disabilities. They're exposed to the pathology of disability. Right. Yeah. And I, so yeah. I think in many ways... For our listeners, can you explain what you mean by pathology? They're exposed to the biology of you know, how does the disability manifest? What are all the bodily functions that are impacted? And, you know, right. what's the prognosis? What can mm -hmm. we hope to achieve yeah. with this patient? And it's all very ableist. It's yeah. Obviously, it's a medical model that they're getting trained in a medical model. And they just, they have a blind spot to the idea that disabled people could have amazingly positive yeah. lives with mm -hmm. their disabilities. And they might actually be happier with their disability <laughs> yeah. than they were if they didn't have their disability. That's just totally. Not, yeah, it's not within the comprehension of medical training. Right. And, 
So and I, that's the first person. Oftentimes when you acquire a disability, or even if you, you were born with it, the first person that you're going to interact with is someone who has been trained to see your disability in the light that you just described. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I feel like that got exposed uh, during this pandemic in a lot of different ways. You know, in Los Angeles at different points during the surge, ambulances were refusing to pick people up if they didn't think they would make it to the hospital. Wow. So that's a form of healthcare rationing yeah. that there's no record of other yeah. than reports of it in the Los Angeles Times. Yeah. But just think about all the healthcare rationing that goes on behind closed doors mm. that we don't know about. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's a that's a good question for our listeners with your background and knowledge of your of your position. I know when we brought to light even like the organ transplant issues or even some of these when these rationing issues were happening, people were like, that's not legal. Uh, the ADA should protect against that. How do they get away with this? Is this legal? What's Well, I think part of the challenge is that ADA is not self-enforcing, right? Like mm-hmm. like when, when I worked at the National Council on Disability, we did studies of federal enforcement of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Special Education Law, the Fair Housing Act, the Air Care Access Act. We looked at lots of federal civil rights laws. And the big takeaway that I had from all those studies is the federal government is never going to be big enough to enforce all these disability rights laws mm. everywhere where they're being violated. Yeah. And the way that you get enforcement of these laws is by having a well-educated protected class. The people who enforce the special education law are parents who know their children's rights and assert those rights in a classroom. People who enforce the Air Care Access Act are people who have disabilities who know their rights and educate people they have to educate in order to get their rights enforced. So in the context of crisis standards of care or healthcare rationing, we need consumers to be well-educated about what is and is not discrimination, and they need to be able to advocate for themselves. But if they have COVID and they need a ventilator, yeah, they're not they're in a great position to do that. So, yeah. True, yeah. so another fight we had was to get people to be able to bring people with them to the hospital. Wow. Yeah. Right. And we, we got our Department of Fair Employment and Housing to issue guidance that the Department of Public Health was supportive of that said, if you have a disability and you need that support, in order yeah. to get quality healthcare, you have a right to bring that person with you to the hospital. Yeah. But again, the person you bring needs to know your rights and needs to be comfortable asserting your rights or they're not likely to be honored or respected. I wish that we could count on hospitals to just do the right thing, but I think we've learned over and over that's not how it works. Yeah, I think I think the, the, the point that you just made around all of our listeners and having an army of disability rights advocates who are aware of their rights and able to assert those rights so valuable. I also think that there's part of the solution in this and changing people's mindsets is ensuring that those that get put in power have a proper mindset of the value of uh, that we have as people with disabilities. And, and I, I go back to uh, if we could maybe find the CDC yes. director's quote, yeah. I think it's a valuable lesson in the fact that sometimes when people are in power, we can't assume just because they're running the CDC that they understand disability and uh, and those of us with disabilities. What was that? Yeah, what was the quote the that they said? The overwhelming number of deaths, over 75% occurred in people with at least four comorbidities. So they... It was it was shared almost as an exciting thing. And, and like you said, a lot of times people aren't 
being intentional about this, right? But it's right. just, it's this unconscious bias that that's, that, that those deaths are, are more okay. And, and I'm just I'm curious to get your thoughts on, on this leaders and their value set and understanding of the entire spectrum of people and why that's so critical in these leadership roles. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the CDC director was trying to make the point that the vaccines were working for most people and the people who were dying were people who were unwell and had a lot of healthcare problems before the pandemic. And it's basically an acceptable outcome. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that our, our job is to protect the healthy people as best we can. And the best way to protect them is to get them to take vaccines. It was an incredibly, uh, probably unconsciously ableist and offensive thing to say. Totally. And then it took her a long time to walk it back. You yeah. know, she, she blamed the editing. Yeah. And then we I, saw- Did that, she really? Oh, yeah, double down oh, at first. Goodness. Like, did essentially really? And then we it. saw the full transcript and it didn't yes. get any better. Yes, <laughs> it was worse. Yes, yes. Yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, I, some of you, it's easy to pick on political leaders and it's easy to yeah. pick on physicians, but I think- the disability community was so ready to have that fight because I think we felt over and over during this pandemic, our needs, our quality of life, our health was to take second fiddle. Think about all yeah. the disabled people who didn't get any medical treatment wow. for over a year because nobody made it safe for them to go to a doctor. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you had really serious negative consequences from getting exposed to COVID, you're just not going to go to a doctor. Yeah. 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 Or, or go many places. I mean, I think that, that there was a lot of frustration too in, in the disability community with the different restrictions lifting and people being like, oh, you know, it's good now we have vaccines and it's not necessarily over for yeah. everyone. And the other thing I've been thinking a lot about, both in the context of when do you not have to wear masks or how do we make decisions about who gets a hospital bed, who gets a ventilator, who gets whatever scarce intervention is out there is who is the right person to make that decision and mm. what is, what is the right training like you could wow. say that's not really part of medical training absolutely you know, medical yeah. training is do no harm yeah when you make a rationing decision somebody's getting harmed yeah right um Very so true. is it is it better done by a panel of lay people but if so how do you account for bias race racial bias yeah. disability bias gender bias yeah all kinds of representative religious bias mm -hmm. all kinds of bias yeah. so maybe it's a ecumenical group of faith leaders like who who is who are the right people yeah. to make the decisions and I, I don't know the answer but i know that whoever's making those decisions they need to be clear on what are their core values what are the legal parameters around yeah. which they can make this and they need to understand that science alone will not get you to the mm -hmm. answer. Mm -hmm. That's right. Well, and sometimes it's not even backed by the science, but right. that overriding bias. I mean, we saw that in, in the transplant episode where the science showed that they don't have a worse quality of life, that they right. that the success of the transplant is just as effective um, based on your IQ and whether or not you have an intellectual disability. But even though the science said that it didn't, that that overwhelming bias is still to this day in, in several states around Absolutely. the country, limiting and rationing 
again, with scarcity of organs, who can get one and whose who's life is worth it? Yeah. Well, and, and I think that there's there are, uh, this isn't a recent issue. I think that we also have to recognize um, for those of us with disabilities, you know, whether it was forced sterilization or uh, Nazi Germany first impacting people with mm-hmm. disabilities, it comes down to a fundamental perception that our lives are of less value. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I think that we do have to address this in modern day issues, but we also have to begin and continue to help our fellow man no longer see those of us with disabilities as them, but a realization that you are us and we are you. And I also think in the context of rationing with ventilators in California, there was a real combination of ageism, ableism, and racism. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the the people that were going to lose if those April standards had become the the kind of gold standard for rationing were people of color who were obese and old. Yeah. 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 Because they had had everything was stacked against them. And the people making those decisions were not in that category. So <laughs> that's right. So I do, I do feel like there's a there's a broad kind of cross civil rights opportunity mm-hmm. to learn from the pandemic and for the Office of Civil Rights at the Department of Health and Human Services and the Department of Justice to really say these are the kinds of things that will never be okay. Yes. Mm-hmm. And these are the kinds of things that are possible yeah and i think where they're going to land is if somebody is not going to survive an intervention if you have good reason to believe that they're not going to survive an intervention that is one legitimate way that you can distinguish you know when you start getting into well how long will they survive and what will their quality of life be and will they understand yeah you know whatever it is that you're using to say they're lesser than right you're in very uh, treacherous territory. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, and you brought up your, you know, your work on the health equity task force and the first and worst and, and often people with disabilities on any policy decisions for rationing or, or making a change are, are impacted first and worst. And, and as are people of color that we see, and it's, I mean, how do we move beyond, you know, you talked about that the, that really who who gets these things enforced are the people themselves being being educated is that sustainable though how do we get this education like you said physicians need they they learn about this deficit-based medical model how do we need to change the education of physicians to make sure they learn about the value of disability and and, and disability rights and how do we build a, a society and a culture that respects and values everyone yeah i mean uh, you know i i wish I had kind of clarity on the best way to do that. I, I think part of it is having more disabled people everywhere. Yeah. Yes, you know, we, yes. we had the concept of nothing about us without us for a long time. 
now a lot of people are just saying nothing without us. Yeah, yes. <laughs> I like so, that. I like that's it. That's so good, yeah. We need yeah. to be in medical schools. Yeah. We need to be on the faculty. We need yes. to be students. We need to be yes. in every role. We need to be on hospital boards of directors. We need to be the CEO of hospitals. <laughs> we on the need, Supreme Court. Yeah, we, we, need, need, you know. yes. we need to be everywhere. Yeah. And we need to make sure that every conversation about cultural and linguistic competence health equity, disparities, that disability is always part of that conversation. Yes. And, yeah. and for many years, it wasn't part of that yeah. conversation. Yeah. I also just want to say, I think the coalition building opportunity between advocates who are primarily focused on older adults and advocates who are primarily focused on people with disabilities, this is an issue where those two worlds come together yes. very clearly. So. You can't really separate out the ageism from the ableism. They go no. together when you're trying to decide, you know, yeah. who's, who's going to get an intervention, mm -hmm. who's, who's collateral damage. Yeah. 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 Look at all the people who died in nursing homes. Yeah. They were old disabled people. Yeah. You know? That's and, right. And yes. as a society, we let that happen. Yeah. Yeah. And those really, it, it's like this, it, I mean, we've talked about this idea of what, what is your quality of life and valuing one person's quality of life over another. And, and even just the idea of congregate settings in general are, are certainly an advancement from where we started, where we ignored people with disabilities. Then we had institutions and we thought we were, oh, we're going to take care of them. Then we've moved We've shifted to this congregate settings. We haven't really truly gotten to know people with disabilities are fully inclusive and part yeah. of our communities and, and part of our own, you know, homes Nothing and communities. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I and love so that. I think that just highlighted that how many people we have put into congregate settings. Just if you look at the percentage of deaths that yeah. are based yeah. in congregate settings. Yeah. And I, I also think when you start talking about the inherent value of every human life, it's hard to talk about that without thinking about faith and spirituality. And I would like for us to think about an unusual coalition of progressive religious voices from lots of different denominations and more fundamentalist religious voices from lots of different denominations locking arms around the idea that every life is valuable. We need more people like that, people yeah. who are in lay leaders, people who are clergy, but who just have that deep love for disabled people because there's just not enough of that. Yeah, There's so much avoidance of disabled people. Yeah. If you think about the typical faith community and how they deal with accommodations for yeah. disabled people, it's very grudging. It's, yeah. it's, there's, it's very unusual to be in a church that has American Sign Language captioning, full wheelchair <laughs> right. accessibility, audio description. Yeah. Why yeah. is that so hard? Especially with these mega churches and the budgets that yeah. they have. Totally. It's because yes. the leadership is not leaning into the fact that these are the most important people in our congregation. Yes. Yes. And most congregations are old. Yes. <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. they all need it. My mother, you know, attends church now over Zoom or I mean, over the television because she can actually hear what's going on. Yes. So good. Yes. Well, so and good. a lot of those, the crazy thing is a lot of those accommodations would help somebody who doesn't have a disability too. It might help the mom who's baby's crying in her ear. She can read the closed captioning and Come follow on. along. There are so, good. so many, it, it, it helps everybody. I hear a whole separate podcast just on faith and disability <laughs> that we got to have. Yeah. We got to, we got to no, have that I, I really do think you can't yeah. talk about healthcare rationing and life or death issues without having some concept 
that the faith community has a role to play. Yes. 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 I'm not well, saying we have to insert faith into people who are who don't have a religious sure. belief. But I, I mean, when I compare a physician or a rabbi. Who do I want making a decision about whether I'm going to get a ventilator? I'll take the rabbi. <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> that's yes. so good. No, that's, that's true. So that's almost like a bad joke. A physician, a rabbi, and oh, walk no. into a doctor oh, no. decide your, your fate. And yeah, what you also were talking earlier about kind of like what we also have to accept. What are we put on this earth to do? We kind of expect, well, what, what value are you going to add? That's what these decisions are being made of. Well, what can you contribute? And we're here to just be there's no yeah there there we have to let go of this expectation that everybody has to you know of course we all we all make contributions and it feels good to contribute and sure. do things and and uh people with disabilities and and all types of people but yeah. this expectation does my title right? mean that i have a greater value to society than someone without a particular title yes yeah. your life yes this yeah. life what is what can, and and that's you know, I mean, I think that's a real change. It's kind of a, you know, and I think a lot of the disability rights pieces that, or, or barriers that are faced are, are somewhat of that attitude too. Like, well, pull yourself up from your bootstrap. You know, you have to contribute and do something. And that's but just, this idea that we're all measured by how much salary we can command. Right, or, that's it. You know, what we can contribute at a meeting or whatever, whatever is valued. Yeah. It is ableist. Yes. And it does exist in the disability movement. We right. have ableism baked into our own movement. It's, yeah. it's very countercultural to see everybody as inherently valuable, no matter who they are, no matter what they do. Yeah. So I just feel like we have to check each other as a movement when yeah. we start to play into that narrative. That's so good. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm curious. Closing thoughts on this concept. You know, we talked today about health equity and the scarcity and rationing and, and how people with disabilities and the elderly are often the first to get cut. I mean, for me, it's a through line from eugenics, what happened in the Holocaust to people with disabilities and the idea that during this global crisis, the people who disproportionately died were older folks, folks with disabilities people of color, low-income populations globally, I'm hoping that we can have a never again moment and yes. say, okay, this happened. It's horrible. It's still going on. Mm -hmm. What did we learn? And yeah. what are we going to do to make sure that this never happens again? Or certainly yeah. never happens again on this scale. Yeah. yeah. We and can it, do better. for me, part of maybe I was raised Catholic, but it starts with some mea culpas. <laughs> <laughs> People need to acknowledge the role that we all played in letting this happen. Yeah. 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 But I, I think I think you're right. The takeaway is uh, in so much as we all and our listeners included have the power to do something about this, and we're going to leave you with some things that you can do. But I think we should all walk away from this saying never again. Yeah. And every every hospital has an ethics committee that has community representation. Yeah. We can all connect with our local hospitals and try to bring a disability affirming perspective to those committees. It's a great yeah. idea. Representation, like like we talked about, is key. I mean, and it your your never again comments reminds me of a Maya Angelou quote. We we do the best we can until we know better. And when we know better, we do better. 
and, and we know better. Thank you, everyone, for joining this powerful episode of the Disability Garrison. I know many of you are probably wondering, what can I do to impact health disparities and to make the world a more equitable place? Well, we have a few suggestions for you of actions that you can take. Again, we always like to give you, our listeners, three really specific actions that you can take. One is an action that you can take as an individual. Secondly, is an action that you can take uh, that will have a broader systematic issue. And then last, we want to give you an organization that's doing great work around these issues and give you an opportunity to donate to that organization. So let's start with the first action, something that you as an individual can do. Make yourself aware. There are health disparities all around us. How does it affect your community? How does it affect your hospital? What are the ethics committee at your local hospitals? Is your church accessible to people with disabilities? These kinds of healthcare disparities are things that we can become aware of and then talk about and make sure that we are addressing them in our local communities and that the conversation is being had. So we also want to give you a systematic thing that you can do to have an impact on healthcare disparities. In Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, entities are prohibited from discriminating based on race, color, national origin, sex, age, or disability. It is expected that in 2022, the Biden administration will look to update these provisions to advance racial equity even further. We're not exactly sure what this is going to look like or what's going to happen around it, but the federal government plays a big part in ensuring that health equity is available to everyone. So we'd encourage you to contact the Department of Health and Human Services and encourage them to take a look at these regulations and ensure that the Affordable Care Act and specifically Section 1557 continue to have a positive impact on healthcare disparities. Lastly, we want to make sure that you have an organization that you can donate to. As you know, Andy Imperato, our guest today, is the Executive Director of Disability Rights California. They are an awesome organization that defends and advocates and strengthens the rights of those of us with disabilities. We really encourage you to go check them out. If you go to disabilitygarrison.org for the links to donate to this incredible organization, and we encourage you to do that. As always, we are super grateful for each one of you that listen in every month. We know that we are having an incredible impact throughout the country, and we are honored to join you in this fight for justice and equality.